Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. You got to believe in them, and they got to know it, and then they'll, they'll grow into that. They'll become that because they know you, you they, they, they know the head man believes in them. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. This episode, I co-interview with Dan Leffelar, the director of Novus Global Sport, who oversees all of our coaches working with professional athletes. We sit down with college football coach and TV analyst, Mark Richt. He was the head coach of the University of Georgia for 15 years and at the University of Miami for three. He won two SEC championships, five SEC division titles, and one ACC division title. He was a two-time SEC Coach of the Year and the 2017 ACC Coach of the Year, and he was the winner of the National 2017 Walter Camp Coach of the Year Award. He is a college football coach legend. Mark's book, Make the Right Call, Game Day Wisdom for Life's Defining Moments, came out just a week after this interview, and we recommend you check that out wherever books are sold. In this episode, we talk about how to value character development and leadership development with your teams, the secret to why moms wanted their sons to play for Coach Rick and how that applies to our leadership today. One final note, in light of Mark being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease this past year, he has become increasingly passionate about sharing how his faith continues to expand his life. In this episode, he shares his perspective on God, death, and making the most of the life we've been given. Enjoy the show. All right, so we have the one and only Mark Richt here. And of course, Dan Laflar is our head of Novus Global Sport. And so we get to talk to you a little bit and we are thrilled to be able to talk with you. Of course, we know mm-hmm. your son and are big fans of him. And if, if John trusts you, I trust you. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. And he's a good man. We've really enjoyed getting to know him a little bit. So the first question is a little weird, but um, I was, we were doing research and I found a gene commercial. <laughs> I've done it all, baby. Like a blue jean? Like like a you were like a model for a blue jean commercial? Oh yeah. Here's what happened. I'm at the University of Miami and some company from South America or somewhere, I think it was South America, <laughs> shows up with a bunch of cameras and uh, we're gonna audition for a commercial. So they shot all of us doing these silly things. I think I was jumping rope or jumping on a trampoline. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> anyway. Uh, they, they videoed a bunch of us doing a bunch of stuff, and we, we thought we were auditioning for the commercial. What we didn't know is we were, we were doing the commercial. <laughs> doing so it. They took all that video, went, went back to South America or wherever they were from, and all of a sudden, somewhere on the Internet, somebody showed me on a <laughs> Jesus jeans, they were called. Yeah, Blue Jesus. They're Blue Jesus jeans. Blue jeans, right? <laughs> Anyway, that uh, I was ahead of my time wow. on this uh, uh, NIL stuff, if you know what that's all about. But uh, <laughs> just hilarious. I just didn't get paid. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't pursue modeling as a career. I mean, I think I mean, I think I think it worked out for you. But I think that could have been a very different life for you. I think hmm. I had a portfolio, but it didn't it didn't take me very far. <laughs> well, good thing that didn't happen because otherwise we wouldn't have had 35 years of you being, frankly, one of the best coaches in college football. Yeah, we were talking before we started recording. There's so many angles that Dan and I want to talk, and, and frankly, selfishly, you know, Dan and I. 
not only our coaches, but you know, Dan leads a division in the firm and that's growing. And, and I'm trying to do my best to lead this company and a few other things that we're doing. And so we, we are talking to you not only as uh, to our audience who are all leaders, but also as Dan and I, who are aspiring leaders and practicing leaders. And, and there's just a wealth of knowledge there. But of course, first things first, and I didn't realize this until we started looking at this. You, you've got a book, we're recording this in August. You've got a book coming out in like a few days. Right. Yeah, the book's called Make the Call, and it's kind of a play on words. Uh, if you're a play caller in a game, you, you have to make a call every 40 seconds. Obviously, oh. if you're the head coach, you've got calls that you need to make all throughout the game and, and then throughout recruiting and just discipline of players. So you're constantly making calls. And as we know, you know, making a call is the same thing as saying making decisions, you know. So, uh, you know, you make a lot of decisions as a coach. Uh, as a husband, as a as a father, and uh, we all we all make decisions, so we all have to make calls. So the book's about kind of the back scene look at some of the decisions I made in football, uh, with my family, uh, in, in my faith, all kind of wrapped into one. So a lot of uh, ins and outs of exactly what went behind some of these decisions that I made over the years, and hopefully uh, by the end of the book there'll be an ultimate decision or an ultimate call that the reader's going to get a chance to make. I love that. And so if you're listening to this, that book is already out. It just came out. It's brand new. Make the call. You spent 140,000 hours coaching over the last several decades. And so that's a that's a lot of 40-second calls. We're excited about that. One of the things that I think you mentioned in the book is the idea of finishing the drill. Is that... Right. Can you talk us more about that? Yeah, finish the drill uh, is a motto that uh, happened kind of organically at Georgia. And how it started was uh, there's an off-season program that Florida State ran under Coach Bobby Bowden. And I was an assistant coach there for 15 seasons. And it was one of those, you know, get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, get on the wrestling mat, and do these drills where as many as 10 guys have got to perform just right. If one guy doesn't do it right, everybody's got to go back and do it again. And it's it's really pretty grueling physically. It's, it's and mentally, too, emotionally. It's... It's a great team-building exercise because, like I said before, if one guy doesn't get it right, everybody's got to go do it again. So everybody has to count on each other. Yeah. And we've had guys that have gone into the military and done the boot camps, and they're like, it was nothing like mat drills. you know. <laughs> but one of the things about the mat drills is that every single drill we had, and we had more than uh, the drills on the mat itself, we had the running ropes and you know, typical change of direction drills that you do that everybody in the country does, but we do it a certain way where you had to do it exactly right. And probably most important is that there was a finish line. So mm. there was a cone or a line or something, a visual for them to know that you had to go full speed past that cone to finish the drill. And that was the big war cry for us. Anybody can start a drill with a lot of energy, but can you finish the drill as mm. well as you started? So... Long story short, finishing the drill basically means never quit. Well, my first year at Georgia, of course, we put in the mat drills, and they're, they're wondering what in the world just happened to us, <laughs> uh, just trying to survive the thing and, and hating pretty much every minute of it and wondering, is this really that important of a thing to do? Season number one, our first away game at Tennessee, we were playing a team that uh, – played in the SEC championship game, and if they had to beat LSU, they'd have played for the national championship. So we're, we're playing a great Tennessee team, 
at their place. Tennessee had won nine out of the last 10 against Georgia. And we're late in the game. We get an interception with about two minutes to go. And we had the lead and the ball. Looked like we're going to win. If we get one more first down, well, we didn't get one more first down. They called three timeouts, got the ball back. I think it was about a minute 10 or something like that. They throw a screen pass. It goes 87 yards for a touchdown to take the lead with just <laughs> less than a minute to go in the game. The fans went nuts. The, the stands were literally shaking. The ground was shaking. It looked like they got us again, you know. Well, we marched down the field and get to the point where we're on the eight-yard line with eight seconds to go. And we call this play, it was called Pass 44 Haynes, P44 Haynes. The P meant play pass. 44 was the name of the run that we would fake. And Haynes was the fullback who was going to slip through the <laughs> middle of the line of scrimmage looking like he's blocking a linebacker. And when that linebacker gets ready for that collision, he slipped right by him right down the middle wide open for a touchdown. So we score the touchdown with just wow. seconds to go in the game. We win the game. We're in the locker room. Everybody's going nuts. And when we finally settle down, I start to try to explain uh, what had just happened and how great it was. And then one of the guys that stood up said, Coach, we finished the drill. Yeah. And uh, so it became our motto really for the rest of the time, the next 14 and a half years at Georgia. You know, that was our motto to finish the drill. And it, and it is, in essence, it means no matter how tough things get, you just can't quit. And that guy... Ferran Haynes, who caught that ball down the middle, that fullback, he calls me literally. I'm in the middle of writing the book. He calls me and says, hey, coach, my daughter's in dance, and uh, she hates it, and she wants out. She wants to quit. And <laughs> Ferran said, hey, in the Haynes family, we finished the drill. We don't quit. <laughs> and uh, so she finishes her dance. Well, then he calls me back about a month later, and he went back to get his degree because he left early to play NFL ball. And went back to get his degree. By then, his kids were growing up enough for his son to get in his ear and say, hey, Dad, you finished the drill. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of a life lesson on never giving up on a drill, never giving up in a game, but never giving up on a relationship, never giving up on your marriage or a child or whatever it may be. So when things get tough, just know you can finish the drill. Yeah, well, what I like about that story is, you know, he's a player for you and that's a lesson that he'll remember and is now passing on to the next generation. No doubt. One of the quotes that we found about you is you said, uh, and I'd love to hear you talk more about this, if you build a, a better man, then you build a better team. Obviously, you're working with all-male right. sports teams. If you build a better person, you build a better team. Can you talk to us a little bit about, one is where did you learn that or was that innate for you? And two, can you right. talk about how that's played out in your career? For me, the coaching was more than just trying to win a championship. It was more than trying to, you know, get more money or whatever it may be, get a better job. I mean, it, w it wasn't about that for me. It was a calling for me. It was something that I felt God was leading me to do. And I think in the process, he wanted me to take care of the young men that he put me in authority over. So, you know, my goal as much as it was to win was to help these guys grow up. I mean, from 18 to 22 years old, uh, like Michael Irvin's dad, Michael Irvin Jr., who I coached, his father, the great wide receiver from Miami, he said, hey, coach, squeeze the boy until a man comes out. Hmm. And that was a great visualization of what, what happens during your college days. You, you kind of are a little bit of a, in, a, in a boyhood stage learning how to become a man. And so, you know, we did a lot of things to try to help 
that process alone, and everybody knew it. And some people were like, well, coach, you worry too much about that and not enough about winning. And that's where, that's where I would say, look, in my opinion, if you build a better man, you're going to build a better team. Yeah. If you've got a more responsible human being, he's going to be a better team leader. He's going to be a better teammate. And uh, so that, that's kind of where that, that saying came from. It reminds me of another quote, life is about people, not rings. Rings collect dust. Do you remember saying right. that? Yeah, I said that. It just slipped right out of my mouth at the uh, press conferences I took the University of Miami job. And, uh, you know, it, it's so true in the end. Uh, I mean, like right now I've got, I don't know, I can't even tell you how many SEC championship rings, national championship rings. Mm. They're, they're in a, you know, those bank bags where you, yeah, you, you, yeah. you zipper up your valuables in there. You know, I, I got a bag somewhere with them. They're all full of rings. I mean, <laughs> Uh, you know, life isn't about winning a trophy. Life's about relationships. And, you know, even in the very end, you know, when we, when we meet our maker, I, I think God's going to say, not, he's not going to ask me how many championships did you win or can I see your rings? He's going to say, what did you do with the young men that I put you in, in yeah. authority over? And uh, so I think that's where it's at. Mark, did that change for you at one point in your life? Were you about the ring? Were you about the championship? Or was it yeah, always? Yeah, I would say yes, uh, that I was that guy. I was very confident, to say the least, coming through high school. You know that song, Carly Simon, You're So Vain? You probably think this song's about you. That was, <laughs> it was probably, I had a, more than one girl tell me that that song was made for me. But uh, yeah, I, I was a pretty self centered guy. Uh, not a great brother or son or friend, really. It was mostly about me. Then in 1986, I came to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. And then all, all my, uh, once my spirit changed, you know, everything else, my behavior began to change. And uh, I became more other-centered, more Christ-centered. And, uh, you know, that, that happened in 86 after the death of one of the players at Florida State. And Coach Bowden was basically talking to the team the day after the the murder and uh he said you guys are 18 to 22 years old you think you're gonna live forever like pablo thought he was gonna live forever that was the young man who got shot he said if that was you instead of pablo do you know where you'd spend eternity and he was talking to the players but uh it went right to my heart and that was truly a, a game changer for me in my life here and and beyond you know, you, you've, and you've mentioned Bobby's influence in your life in a lot of ways. There's actually, there's two questions that I think we can wrap into one with that specifically, which is being around him. How did that influence you? So now obviously right. there was a spiritual influence, sure. but also, also when you're talking about building better men, you know, right. so Dan and I help lead a community of coaches across the world right. and we do care about their lives. We do care about their, their health. We do care about the kind That's of people right. they become. And so uh, we would love to hear some of the ways that maybe you learned from, from Bobby or, or even from some of the coaches you worked with. Well, you know, coaches motivate in different ways. A lot of coaches motivate through fear, through intimidation, uh, you know, especially in, in the college level. You could pretty much make a guy do whatever you want him to do. If he wants to play bad enough, uh, he'll mm -hmm. try to obey what coach says to do. But that's kind of a short-lived type of leadership, in my opinion. Coach Bowden, on the other hand, he motivated through compassion and love. He loved the players. He loved his coaching staff. 
we knew it. The coaches knew it. The players knew it. So we loved him because of it. Mm. And we wanted to win for him as much as we wanted to win for us. That was his style, but it wasn't, it wasn't a style as much as a way of life. And what would that look like? So then what, what are some, <laughs> forgive me for drilling this from the conceptual, then the spiritual into like the practical. Sure. Like what, were there any, and a story would be fine too, but like, can you give examples of things you noticed him doing with players? Well, I can give you, I can give you a hundred. I'll start with um, how we would start our day. Every day we'd have a staff meeting and every staff meeting we would have a devotional to start it off. So if there's 25 men in the room in the inner circle of coaches and support staff, every man had a day that it was his day for the Devo, we called the devotional. <laughs> and the goal was to have something inspirational, hopefully, uh, for everybody around. But also we would end in prayer because, you know, we believed that and Coach Bowen believed that, you know, we only have so much strength. We only have so much wisdom. We give out and uh, God never gives out. So, you know, the goal was to motivate the guys around you, but also, you know, pray for God's divine help. So what would happen was a guy would get his day for the devotional and more times than not, he began talking about his life and how things were going and things of that nature. So you started to learn the heart of the guy next to you. And when you're a staff member and as many hours as we put in together, you, you get tired of a guy. You know everybody's warts and everybody kind of gets, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of get tired of a guy. And then all of a sudden he has the Devo and you're like, dang, I, I got to like this guy now, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but they, it, it was a great, great team building thing for us. You know, the other thing Coach Bowden did for us is uh, when it came to family, he would always ask the coaching staff, when are you going to see your children? And he wasn't like, uh, you know, every Thursday night after practice, well, I'll see my family. It was like, no, I'm talking about every day when you're going to see your kids. And so, you know, we chose to start our staff meetings at 830, which allowed us to get up with our kids. I got up with my kids every day. We had breakfast together. We had a family devotional together. I drove them to school till they could drive themselves. So my kids saw me every single day, but that was important from Coach Bounds' point of view because he didn't want us to lose our relationships with our wives and our children because of just grinding away. And coaches are probably the worst when it comes to hours. And I, I know there's a lot of people that put in hours and work their tail off, so I'm not saying it's only coaches, but I know from my point of view it's – we have stupid hours, quite frankly, and we needed a man who could lead us and uh, give us the opportunity to love our families. Our, our children and wives were, were welcome at the office. They were welcome at practice. We had family night once a week where everybody came and broke bread together, not only with the staff and their families, but with the players too. So the players got to see fatherhood modeled. They got to see marriage modeled, you know, right in front of their eyes from their position coaches. So it was just an all-inclusive, holistic approach to loving these players, and uh, Coach Bowden was the best at it. I'm just curious, like, as you, as you began creating a culture like that or you were in a culture like that, are there any players, or I mean, we don't have to name any, but, like, are there any players that you saw – that really transformed them over time. Like you, right. they came in maybe with a chip on their shoulder or an yeah. attitude. Like, I'm just curious how that impacted athletes and even their performance. Uh, I would say, I would say 
80% of them got it. Now, when did they get it? Some of them had it when they showed up, you know, they're raised, mm, right, so yeah. to speak. You know, they had a lot of the value system of their families that were really healthy and would help them, you know, navigate college athletics, college football in particular. But there's a lot of guys that didn't have that modeled. So, you know, a lot, a lot of them got it while they were there. You know, some of the toughest guys and the hardest guys to deal with were the guys I saw the most in my office, you know, got a chance to mentor mm, yeah. the guys that were always in trouble. And, uh, and a lot of them figured it out by the time they got to be juniors and seniors and saw them other young pups come in and they're like, you know, we used to have a brother's keeper program where juniors and seniors would mentor freshmen and sophomores to kind of show them mm. the ropes and help them through, you know, their careers. But, and then some guys got it later in life. I had one kid who was, one of those pains in the rear kind of guy. <laughs> he ended up years later out of college becoming a high school coach. And he he calls me, he said, Coach, I just want to apologize to you for what Jeez. an idiot I was <laughs> when I was a player. Because now Jeez. I'm talking to these knuckleheads and they're making me crazy. But uh, so I think a lot of good seeds get planted. And it's, you know, it's hmm. good not to get. Uh, discouraged if a guy doesn't figure it out right off the bat because you are planting good seeds and even though it doesn't happen maybe as fast as you want it to happen they 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 lay they lay their head on the pillow at night they think about what you said they think about how you treated your wife and how you treated your children and even I've had guys that I have kicked off the team because I had to that have come back hmm. to me and said coach thank you for loving me enough to discipline me and help me get get straight. It, it got my wow. attention and it changed my life. So, you know, staying consistent with those guys and letting them know that even when you discipline them, that's a form of love. There is a way to discipline not in love. There's a way to discipline oh, yeah. out of anger or punishing or those exactly. types of things. And so it's, it's, I think, really powerful to see models of discipline as a expression of love. I'm going to go back just for a second because you'll say things and then you'll move on and they're like, there's like an, <laughs> there's like an ocean underneath the, the right. thing that you said. So this, this, this brother's keeper, I'm asking selfishly, I was working with a client just, I think, last week. Right. And we were talking about as new people are coming into their company, how do you help people find their way and find their wits and, right. and acclimate, to, especially for large companies, Sure. And you were kicking around this idea of like a, a mentoring system. Can you tell right. us a little bit about what that mentoring system looked like? Well, for us, and we didn't do it every season, but, uh, you know, we always encouraged it for the older guys that help the younger guys. You, Every position meeting room is a leadership core in, the, in every single room, the quarterback room, the wide receiver room, the tight end room. You know, so you got older veteran guys in each room that you would – want to help the young guy. So we always encouraged that. But then we finally, you know, gave it a name and, and kind of organized it a little bit better where uh, we did try to go by position because, you know, they were going through common things and they could also help them with football as well as, as life mm. on campus and all those kind of things. But the goal was to have a junior take a freshman so that junior and freshman could be together not only that season, but the next season when the guy became a senior and a sophomore, and then when that sophomore became a junior, then all of a sudden he now became a mentor to the freshman. So we, we, that was the goal. But, you know, sometimes guys go pro early and all that kind of thing. So it wasn't just perfect, but it was a really good model 
to get started with. And uh, we always have character education classes in the spring and summer. A lot of it was built around uh, leadership. So everybody's at a little different level of leadership. And uh, it helped the older guys uh, take on that responsibility. Mm. But it also showed, you know, when you, t- when you take leadership character education type classes, you know, one of the, the starting points of leadership is the, the core values of what a leader is. So those freshmen are working on those core values of, you know, hard work, integrity, truthfulness, you know, all those kind of characteristics. And then you put them into practice when you become uh, more of a veteran player. Uh, so, you know, Mark, obviously a big legacy of your leadership is being able to select and build a team and create a leadership culture, not only with your staff, but also with your athletes. I'd be, yeah. I'm really curious about what do you look for right. in athletes and what do you look for in staff? Because our everyone who's listening to this or many people are listening to this, even in the gig economy now, hiring other people, hiring assistants or right. partnering with people is very important. The skill is very important. What, what are the things that you look for in the people that you hired to, to build this right. unmitigated success that you had? Well, I'll start with players. I mean, you know, the first thing you look for is a skill set. You know, can they play the <laughs> position you're going to ask them to play and win mm-hmm. the SEC, ACC, or the national championship? You, you have to start there. All right. Then the next thing you got to do for, for those kids is you got to find out their academics to see can they handle college work mm-hmm. and, you know, can they, you know, get their degrees and, and even be eligible to be signed into your program. So once you figure those two things out, then you got to find out what kind of person is this guy? What kind of character does he have? You know, is he going to be a good teammate? Is he going to be a good team, potential team leader for you? You know, is he, is he immature and you know, you, you got to grow him or is he just got enough character issues that it's, it's not, it's not worth bringing him in the program for how he may affect other guys around him. So, so again, the ability to do the job, number one, the grades, number two, and the character, number three. Now, you know, when you talk about young kids, uh, you're going to develop that talent and develop that character, you hope, and uh, grow them into the man that uh, God designed them to be. Now, when it comes to hiring your staff, there's really two hires, in my opinion. One is of someone who, like, for example, for me, if I'm going to hire a defensive coordinator, okay, this guy's got to be the tip of the spear on the defensive side of the ball, okay? He's got to be competent in his job and his ability to lead, and he's got to have a lot of attributes to be the guy that I'm going to basically turn loose. I'm going to give him a job but also the authority to carry his job out. That's very crucial. Sometimes people want to give you a job description, but they don't give you the authority to do your Mm -hmm. job. And that's very frustrating in the coaching profession of a head coach that's going to micromanage everything you do. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, after a while, you're like, you know what, I'm getting out of here because this guy's driving me nuts. Well, on the other Mm -hmm. hand, if you hire this guy to do a job, you give him the authority to carry it out, he takes ownership of that thing you're going to build loyalty between you and him for sure. Obviously, he's got to be very competent, but it, but he does have to be a, a person of character. Because if you bring in people with bad character, I don't care how good they are, it's going to bite you in the end. It's going to cost you. But they have to be competent, in my opinion, first. 
and then you find out what kind of person he is. What are you looking for the character piece? I feel like competency is the easiest thing to measure, especially in a sport where everything is, is measured right. ad infinitum. But like, you, right. how do you? How did you assess well, figure that out? If a guy uh, is, if he's a defensive coordinator, he's been around the block. He's been around a while. You don't, you don't become defensive coordinator in year one of your career. It's maybe year 10 or year 15 or year 20, or you might've been a coordinator for another five years, whatever it may be. So there's a track record, hmm. you know, that you can find out what kind of guy is he in the, in the coaching business. You know, you're going to know somebody who knows somebody that knows this guy. Hmm. You know, what, what's this guy about? Is he just about him or is he about the team? Mm. Can he handle being under authority or does he think he's going to take over? Mm. You know, what kind of guy is he? So you can vet him pretty good by the people that you know that will help you decide that. Well, that's an interesting statement too. Can he be under authority? Because it, it sounds like there's a paradox there. One is, can you trust them with authority and right. not micromanage them? But also, can they be under authority? Can you talk a little right. bit about what that means and how can you tell when someone can be under authority? Well, again, getting back to can he be the authority? It's the greatest example I gave is just is the one I'm giving. Is for me personally, I was an offensive coach. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was going to be more involved in what happened on the offensive side of the ball, whether I was calling plays or not. It didn't matter. I was going to be more in tune to what happened on that side of the ball. Hmm. On defense, I needed a guy that could run the defense who didn't need help from me. You know, there may be help and guidance in how you, how you handle players, how you handle discipline, how you might treat your staff. You know, there's a lot of things that a head coach can help a guy like that. But as far as X's and O's, Jimmy's and Joe's and all that, you know, he's got to be able to handle that. And he's got to be able to lead that team, that, that side of the ball. But he's still got to be able to, he has to be able to listen to what the head coach has to say about how we're going to go about our business in recruiting, in disciplining of players and all those kind of things. So you find that out again by mm. asking who might have uh, been his head coach in the past. Mm. You know, what, what kind of guy are we dealing with? Can he, is he going to be a team guy or is he going to be a me guy? What about uh, you know. what about new hires? So you know, again, with our firm, we've got a lot of young people, and, and, and in fact, like a lot of our coaches, we don't know. Yeah, we don't we don't know, and a lot of our coaches, we've trained how to coach, and so right. we give them the competency, right? But there's not exactly. A track well, that's a great point. That's a great point. If I have to give the defensive coordinator the competency, if I have to teach him, I hired the wrong guy. But if I hire a guy on the on on, on the front end. Uh, usually a younger guy that's coming into the program, just coming in and coaching maybe for the first time, you know, that then the the character of that person uh, jumps ahead of his competency as hmm. far as when it comes hmm. to hiring. So is this guy coachable? Is this guy teachable? Hmm. Is this guy going to be loyal to the program? And that's why you see a lot of coaches hire former players that they coached because they know that kid. Yeah. They know his character. Okay. They know he's going to be loyal to me. You know, yeah. and, and, and I can teach him what to do. Coach Bowen would always say that you could teach a guy what to do, but you can't hardly teach that character if, once he's a full grown man. Mm. So yeah. with a younger hire, uh, you, you have to micromanage them to a certain degree before you set them free. You can't just say, hey, this is your job description. Go do it. 
and they don't even know how to do the job. So you got to teach them how to do the job the way you want it done. And then you could turn them free once they're ready to be turned free. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. And again, there's so much gold there. And Mark, you, you may know this, you may not, you know, because I mean, your, your life was so dedicated to one domain, even though you were a correspondent and things like that. I know you were conversant in lots of different domains. But in my experience, and if you're listening to this and you're a leader or you run a company or own a company, in my experience working with clients, oftentimes the client and I are both kind of surprised when we discover how infrequently they intentionally talk about leadership right. and how infrequently they intentionally develop leadership. Right. I was having a conversation with a client who runs a three, $4 billion company. And I was asking him, hey, what are you doing to talk about leadership, explicitly about leadership? And he joked, he's like, well, that's what I pay you all for. And I was like, I laughed back and I was like, well, you know, we're coaching people to develop their skill and adding value to the company and their job. But that's different than like leadership development. Leadership right. development has a different texture to it than just doing your job. Right. Uh, and character is even less frequent. You know, like if, right. you, if you were to say, there's all sorts of trainings now that are happening across the world in corporate America and character training is sadly probably not one of them. Right. I'd be thrilled for you to talk a little bit about what, let's go in reverse order. Can you tell us what character development training look like? I mean, we, we're, we're just now as a firm learning how to talk about those things and define those things. And we're sloppy at it. We have a lot right. to learn. I'd be thrilled for you to kind of teach us a little well, bit. Well, you know, I'll give an example of one of the summers in Miami. And this, this, is, this would not apply necessarily exactly to businesses across America, but the, the, the premises are the same. So our goal uh, that summer was to, to talk about uh, manhood and fatherhood with these guys. That was the, that was the plan. So the first thing we want to do is define manhood, right? Well, I'm, I'm on the internet. I'm thinking I'm going to find this thing pretty quick. <laughs> manhood, and this will be easy. I'm looking through books. I'm looking through the internet, looking at talks, looking at uh, sermons, and all that. Well, I come across the sermon by Dr. Tony Evans, uh, mm. Dallas. Okay, mm -hmm. the Urban Alternative, and all that he's got. I mean, he was a Dallas Cowboy chaplain. I mean, this guy's wrote Kingdom Man. He's he's a, he's a stud. Anyway, <laughs> I'm listening to him talk about manhood, and he said. And he said, when you're in the boyhood stage, you're undependable, you're irresponsible, and you're highly dependent on somebody to take care of you. Hmm. Okay? So that's how you define boyhood. Yeah. All right? So then he said, in manhood, basically, is somebody's going to take care of business. Okay? So whether you're a, a college football player, taking care of business might be getting up, being on time, being respectful, doing your best in everything you do. You know, if, if you're a, a father, it may look like something different. It may look like something different in your business world. But basically, a man, when you get in the manhood stage, you, you are someone who will take on responsibility and not run. Well, then, hmm. you know, my, my thing that I added was fatherhood. And we talked a lot about fatherless homes and the, the, the issues that those children have to battle and the percentages of things that go wrong with those kids, you know, suicide, teen pregnancy, trouble at school, drugs, guns, you know, all these things hmm. uh, are multiplied by three to five times from a home that has a father, intentional father in the house to, to not having one. So, hmm. and a lot of the guys, you know, that I coached, 
didn't have that model in their in their home. You know, I can't tell you how many mothers came to me and said, Coach, I can teach my son a lot of things, but I, I can't teach him how to be a man. Will you do that for me? You know, so I took that mm. seriously. And uh, mm. so anyway, we started talking about that. And, you know, here's the thing, too. The, the guys don't want to hear, don't call me a boy, don't say I'm in the boyhood stage. Well, if you're irresponsible and you're highly dependent on somebody to take care of you, guess what? You're in the boyhood stage. But anyway, I talked to him about fatherhood and I drew this circle on the, on the board. I said, this is you. And then I drew another circle next to him. I said, this, this is your future wife. Okay. And then I drew a few little circles underneath them, right? These are your kids. So if you love your wife, like Christ loved the church, a sacrificial love, okay, willing to lay down your life for your, your marriage and your wife, if you love her like that, guess what? You're going to bless those children. And your son's going to know what to, how to treat a, a woman. And your daughter's going to know how to look for a husband, a future husband. And then they're going to, they're going to get married and they're going to have kids and they're going to bless their, their children. So just if one man decides to, to man up, he can, he can change a, a cycle of things that really weren't very good for years and within a couple generations there may be a hundred people that he's blessed because he decided to stand up and be a man. And I just think, you know, that that's one of our biggest issues in this country is men don't stand up and take care of business like they need to. I want to play with that a little bit and see if this resonates with you as we talk about this with a few different lenses. You know, when people hear the phrase man up, oftentimes they're, they may hear like, don't feel or, you know, deny right. parts of you that are there and those types of things. What I appreciate what you're saying is, no, a definition of manhood worth embracing is where a person is able to be responsible for themselves and then move into being able to take responsibility for others. Yes. Now, is that, first of all, let me check in. Are we on the same page there? No doubt. Great. So then I'm, as I'm thinking about business leaders who are leading both, you know, men and women or outside the gendered space, would you be comfortable using the word like maturity we move from like childhood to, I guess, adulthood. And adulthood is that, that yeah. where whether you're a man or a woman, you are taking responsibility you for your own childhood instead of boyhood. Yeah. You know, and then the thing too is, uh, you know, to, when we started talking about fatherhood, and I know I'm back on this other tangent. That's right. We, you know, we would say you need to be in the manhood stage before you enter the fatherhood stage. And unfortunately, there's a lot of guys enter the fatherhood stage and they're still a boy. They're still in the boyhood stage. And what, what do boys do or what do children do when things get tough? They run. They run away from mm -hmm. pain. They run away from responsibility. They don't stand up and take care of business. So as you're saying, you know, if you want to just use it in general terms, if you're in that childhood stage, you're still, you know, probably a little bit immature, a little bit self-centered. And you're probably counting on somebody to help take care of you instead of being someone who's going to take care of business as a true adult. Yeah, and I wonder even if there's an evolution there. And again, we can use whatever language we want, but like you've got boyhood, which is where you're wanting someone to take care of you. Manhood is where you take care of yourself. Fatherhood is where you start taking care of others. Yes. And there's like a moral evolution there. And even just to talk about my own life, you know, Dan, Dan's got kids and uh, he's been a father for a long time. And I, I, don't, I have nephews, that's about it. But I can right. tell... I can feel inside of me as I've learned how to take care of myself 
And as I get better, like there's like a profession of self-care and knowing how to take care of yourself. Right. I started like looking around for, I've got all this excess. I've got all this excess energy. I've got excess capital. I've got excess time. Right. You know, and I'm like, I'm like looking for someone to not take care of, I guess, but like to enhance Mentor. someone to, yeah, someone to serve. Right. As you shift from manhood to fatherhood, it seems like you know that when you're like thinking, hey man, I've got all this stuff and I don't want to just have it be just for me. Right. Some people move into fatherhood, like biologically they move into fatherhood before they've moved into manhood right. or fatherhood. But like, has that been your experience for both you guys in terms Something of- Something Mark said actually, as you were describing it, was a little convicting for me. It was like, oh, I, I think part of my development has been to step into, into manhood but I do think there are moments as a father where I'm still a child, if that makes sense. Like there's still a level of wanting to be taken care of. And, and we see this kind of in the caricaturized, you know, in TV and, you know, the right. deadbeat dad who has kids, but he's not really participating in the family, right. sitting on the couch while drinking a beer, watching TV all day. And so as you were talking about that, I was reflecting in my own life. It's like, there are moments where I see myself doing that, where I'm not, I'm a father, but I'm not living into my fatherhood or that love and affection and intention with others around me. So that for me, that's been a growth thing, yeah. Real quick, let me put a bow on that. So one is this may be resonating with you really powerfully. Uh, two is again, if, if the male dominant metaphor doesn't work for you, I think you can gender swap. You can say daughter to woman to mother. But again, we're not talking about motherhood and fatherhood in specifically biological terms. We're talking about it in a person's capacity to live a life that's not just about them, and right. to live a life about investing and serving others. Other people. And what's what's interesting, Mark, so, and I, I want to drill you in for a little more specific. So I, I like that how you like drew a circle. You're showing them, you're kind of painting a vision of the future for them of what they could live into and how to live into that healthily and maybe right. rewrite their story because a lot of them probably came from homes that were not what they would want to create themselves. What else would you do for for character? Would you call it like character school, character development? Would we, you, called character, we called it character education. We had our coaching staff, some of our strength staff, split up the team, freshmen, sophomore, junior, seniors. There was different curriculum for each age group. Like huh. I mentioned before, the younger guys were focusing much more on just characteristics of leadership. And then the, the older guys were doing more practical things. I actually had the seniors. I took them in my group and we talked about how can we practically lead this team? Let's try something today. Let's all be hmm. positive. Let's go to practice and every single guy in this room be positive about, just set the tone for the day that we're going to say something good about your teammate or fire somebody up in some way or just do your job with enthusiasm. And let's just see what happens. Let's see if it spreads throughout the team. And every time, you know, we had a great day. And, uh, <laughs> now, and so they could see idea? the day. What's that? Yeah, sorry. So was that your idea or did that come from the group? Were you, were you brainstorming together or was that, were you, were you more kind of directed? I, well, with I, that? Think, I think that was my idea, but <laughs> you know, ideas uh, for sure. Well, I would even do that as the leader sometimes, just as the head coach. Say I, everywhere I touch, whoever I touch today, I'm going to say something positive to them. Now I, mm -hmm. I learned some of this from my wife. Mm -hmm. She says, honey, do those, do those kids know you believe in them? Do those coaches know you believe in them? And I'd be like, well, they got to do something for me to believe in them. She said, no. <laughs> she said, you got to believe in them and they got to know it. And then they'll, they'll grow into that. They'll become mm -hmm. that because they know you, you they, they, they know the head man believes in them, you know? Yeah. So uh, I, I learned that from Catherine and it, it was very, very true that, uh, 
you know, once you begin to walk walk the yard, so to speak, and walk around the building or walk around the practice field and find find something positive and then say, you know what, that was phenomenal. That was a great job, whatever. You don't have to make stuff up because good things are happening a lot of times. Whatever we expect that to happen. Well, you know what? If you if you reward behavior, a certain behavior, it's gonna it's gonna keep happening. Yeah. The reward might just be at a boy or at a girl in front of everybody in the building. You know, that sometimes that's all somebody needs to continue that kind of behavior and others to say, you know what? I want I want the head man to say something good about me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and that's the second time you mentioned Catherine. And I did want to ask you about her and your relationship as I'm kind of studying you and as Dan and I get to know you via all the sources that we can tap to get to know you before we have this conversation. There's the talking point, which is Catherine for years was the water girl right. on, on the field, which <laughs> when I first heard that was kind of like, oh, that's kind of insulting, but that's not how she related to it at all. No. And that's not how you two related to it together. Can you talk a little bit about that? I want to ask you some questions around that. Right, well, when I first got into coaching, and Catherine and I were married by then, and I was coaching one position. I was coaching quarterbacks. I had a room full of four to six guys, whatever it was. And it's very easy for Catherine to be intentional in their lives and, you know, bring them cookies once a week or just come in and, you know, say hi with the kids or whatever. You know, she was, she was uh, kind of like the uh, football mom for, for mm. that position group. And then you become the coordinator now you're in charge of about 60, 70, 80 guys. And it becomes a little bit more difficult to be intentional. But like she would get together with the other other wives of the coaches and they'd all get organized and do things for the group. Then you become head coach and she's like, well, how can I, hmm. how can I serve 125 guys at the same hmm. time? And uh, she kind of was at, at a loss for how to do that. Well... During the games, uh, the head coach's wife usually will, especially away games, the head coach's wife would sit in the AD's box, athletic director's box provided by the other team. Mm-hmm. And But it was not always comfortable in there because if the team's having a bad moment and the, you know, the AD wants to say something or the president <laughs> or his wife wants wow. to say something, you know, they don't want to be the, have the head coach's wife in there. So she never really felt comfortable in there. So... As it turned out, she uh, was watching a game on the sideline out of the box and said she was watching everybody doing the water. She goes, you know what, I could do that. And so uh, she decided to ask me to ask the athletic trainer, could she be the, could could she help? I mean, she didn't say I want to be the water girl. That just kind of, that meant (laughs) territory. But but she would get with the uh, trainers and uh, she'd grind with them. I mean, you know, six hours before kickoff, they're preparing and getting ready, and she did all that work with them. But it was a way that she could help serve the guys and, and be out of the spotlight because she wasn't really big on being the spotlight. And then this I had one little side side advantage, or however you want to call it. I used to get to, you know, make out with the water girl after the after the game, after the <laughs> victory. So that was kind of cool as well. And it seems as though in every area of your life, you and Catherine looked at yourselves like a team. No doubt. Mm-hmm. And how can we serve together? Right. And that just is really inspiring to me. You know, every marriage is different, but to create a relationship where both of you are serving or kind of on the same mission. And it seemed like she looked almost like she was on, I mean, she was on staff. I mean, she probably didn't get paid, but she was a contributing member of that team. Big time. Well, I'll, I'll say this too. Just a fun football fact. Uh, and if people know my career enough, 
I was at Florida State during the time Charlie Ward was there. And we were running a traditional offense under under center, eye formation, kind of hammer, hammer, hammer the ball, you know, run the ball and then fake it and throw it. That was kind of what we did under Coach Bowden and what he liked to do. Well, we get Charlie Ward and that wasn't his thing. He was throwing interceptions left and right. He wasn't comfortable, but, but when we got behind, we'd have to go to a two-minute drill. So we'd get in the shotgun and before you know it, every every time we got in trouble, we, we'd go to that uh, shotgun, fast break, no huddle. And all of a sudden, Charlie was unbelievable. You know, so finally we played a game against Georgia Tech and uh, we had to score three. We were behind in the traditional look. In the fourth quarter, we, we got to score three touchdowns in the fourth quarter to win the game. So we're like, we got to go two-minute drill right now. So we get the two-minute drill. We go 80 yards get a stop, go 80 yards for a touchdown again, get a stop, go onside kick, get the onside kick, go 60 yards for a touchdown and win the game. And Catherine's like, mm-hmm. she goes, hey, Mark, it kind of seems like uh, every time Charlie gets into the no huddle, he does a lot better. Did you ever think about starting the game in it? And I'm like, that's a good idea. <laughs> so that's that's how we started no huddling from the very first snap of the game. And the first game we did that, we played Maryland. We had 850 yards, which is unheard of. Charlie wow. had 500 yards, 400 throwing, and 100 rushing, and we scored every wow. time we touched the ball. So uh, it was a, it was a wild uh, deal. But yeah, Catherine has been very instrumental in uh, hmm. loving me, uh, being my uh, helpmate in every way. Unbelievable mother who you know. If you're a coach's wife, you got to be you got to be tough, and you can't huh. be dependent on someone to take care of you. She she took care of business, and uh, really really proud of her and love her so much. When it comes to marriage, I highly recommend. By the time you get to your empty nesting stage, if you're still madly in love with your wife, it is awesome. So <laughs> keep that friendship going. Keep that relationship <laughs> going. Plan for time together. And uh, yeah. it's like you plan to do other things in your job. It sounds like both of you moved into fatherhood and motherhood together. And it allows you to have that shared mission. Because, you know, I mean, like in relationships, sometimes I can hear like women saying, I'm dating or married to someone who's still in boyhood. Or I can hear right. fellas say, I'm dating or married to somebody who's still in daughterhood or whatever. And, right. and I feel like when both of you step into maturity together, it really creates a beautiful context for wholeness and generosity and I think that you and Catherine have been a great example of that. No doubt. Speaking of Catherine, again, there's something you mentioned her earlier saying, hey, you got to believe in people before they believe themselves. And you had this great line that I'm really curious about. First of all, I need to ask you, uh, are you a Ted Lasso fan at all? Do you watch Ted Lasso? I, I'm not sure who he is, to be honest with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Ted. Well, you were in for a treat. Dan and I and a bunch of people in our firm love, it's a show on Apple. It's about a football coach who goes to uh, England to coach football there, uh, oh, wow. soccer. <laughs> and it's, it's an incredibly heartwarming show. That's not really the point. Anyway, in, in, in the show, they have this big sign up in the locker room that says, believe. You've mentioned belief a few times. And there's this great line that you said that I was really, really curious about how you relate to this. So this is what you said. You said in an interview somewhere else, you said, keep the staff, keep the players, and keep the crowd believing. And I want to hear more about right. a couple of things. One is... What does that mean? But also, I, I've never thought about the crowd right, as something yeah. the coach needs to care about mm-hmm. in terms of belief. Could right. you t- talk a little bit about what that means? Right. Well, 
I, you know, first of all, we as coaches, it, 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 belief starts from the very top. You know, if the head coach truly believes in what in, in the mission that we have and how we're going to go about our business, then people are going to buy in because everybody's got a mission statement. But most people forget about it within about a month. But if you live it and you truly mean it, then it then it becomes meaningful to not only you know your coaching staff, but it, it affects your your players too. So, as the head coach, you got to believe first, and to help your staff believe, and then your staff. They got to believe. Let's say you're playing an opponent that everybody thinks you don't have much of a chance at, you know. Well, if you don't believe it as the head coach, those, those assistants aren't going to believe it. Hmm. If the assistant coaches don't believe it, their players are not going to believe it. Even hmm. your support staff. I mean, you're in that staff meeting and you've got 25 people. Well, 10 of them are your coaches and there's another group in there that's that's the athletic trainer and the strength coach and somebody with academics and and if they're in there and they sense that the coaches don't believe in the kids, that they can get it done, then don't think that's not going to spill out into the streets and everybody's going to know it. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to have all that belief from the top to help your players to believe it themselves. Now, when it comes to fans, you know, here, here's the deal. Especially, you, I mean, a great example in college coaching is your fan base has a lot to do with how recruits and their parents view your school, okay? Hmm. If you got fans that are, try- that are beating down those kids every time something bad happens on social media, that hmm. parent's like, why would, I wa- why would I wanna send my kid to this school and have the fan base do to them what they're doing? If the fans are believing and the fans understand their role, you know, if they truly support those guys, then the, the moms and the dads and the high school coaches see that and like, you know what, this is the environment I want my son to be in. This is the environment I want my grandson to be in or my nephew or whatever it is. And so, you know, it went, if you get everybody believing, it creates an energy that, uh, you know, will self-perpetuate when it comes to, you know, recruiting and bringing in great players. You bring in great players and develop them. Then all of a sudden you become a very good coach. Yeah. So let's imagine we've got, a bunch of CEOs in a room together. Right. And especially through the pandemic, you know, I mean, like burnout is at a all time high, you know, no doubt. turnover. I think like yeah, 93% yeah. of people are thinking about leaving their jobs, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. What would you say to a group of leaders, men and women who are leading at a very high level and maybe a little tired or maybe have lost a little bit of the belief or have you ex- had any experience helping people get it back? Well, it's, it's first of all, it's very normal to be tired uh, when you're in a leadership position. Hmm. Very rarely can people, you know, separate their private life from their their business life because it's hard to leave things at the office and come home and be that father and be that husband uh, or, or be that mother or, uh, or that uh, head of the house. Hmm. So it's it's understandable that people start to get exhausted, that they start to get tired, that they start to get and that sometimes can create doubts about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And is it really worth it? Yes. And uh, I'll just say this. I mean, I'm a walking commercial for a guy who should have taken better care of himself. You know, I should have eaten better. I should have slept more. I should have exercised more. I should have taken care of myself. 
you know, a year, less than two years out of my retirement. And I retired from coaching because I was exhausted. I was, I was washed out physically, mentally, spiritually. And then that's coming from a guy who thought he had a good beat on having balance in my life. Yeah. But it could, it could do it to you. And so I have a heart attack uh, within a couple years of, of retiring, and now I've got Parkinson's. Well, I mean, you get Parkinson's, some of it's genetic, but a lot of it has to do with toxins in your body, inflammation in your body, and stress in your mm -hmm. life. Hmm. And that's what helps manifest those types of diseases that we have in America. And so take care of yourself, first of all, hmm. okay? Because if you don't, it's going gonna, it's gonna to eat you alive. And the better you take care of yourself, the better attitude you're going to have. I guarantee you, starting the workout stinks. It sucks. Hmm. You don't want to do it. But by the time yeah. you're done and you broke the sweat and you, you did, first of all, you accomplished something. Second of all, you did a lot of things to wash out toxins in your body and just make yourself feel better. It clears your brain. And all yeah. of a sudden, you can think better. So I think some of the issues is that we don't take care of ourselves good enough to have a positive attitude. That's interesting. Yeah, so I hear you saying it's almost as if we misdiagnose doubt or doubt is a natural byproduct of a lack of self-care. Yeah, it's it, fatigue. In coaching, you, you say it all the time. I, and I think it was Vince Lombardi who said it. He said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Mm. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. So when you're exhausted, it's hard to be bold. It's hard to be brave. It's hard to make those decisions that need to be made, that you know that need to be made. But you're like, I don't have the energy to do it. I can't, yeah. I can't keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's interesting how, I, as you're saying it, it seems so obvious once you've said it. But I think sometimes people have difficulty drawing a connection between those two things and not realizing that. You know, they don't need a pep talk. They need a nap. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> you're right. In terms of what, what needs to happen. So then, Mark, let's go back in time a little bit because there's so many things we've already talked about that are counterintuitive, you know, like focusing on leadership development, character development, and the proofs in the pudding. I mean, you've got tons of championships. You've got tons of Coaches of the Year awards and things like that. All these things that other people might have said are distractions actually became competitive advantages for you. With the taking care of yourself, go back in time, what do you wish you would have done differently um, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but like, right. what would you have done differently? What would you encourage younger leaders to do now mm -hmm. that they're going to be like, nah, I can't do that because then I can't stay competitive. You're like, no, this is what makes you competitive. Right. Well, I mean, really just the things I just said. I mean, to get rid of toxins in your body, you need to sweat. Hmm. <laughs> Bottom line. Toxins are in your body. Certain things we eat, certain things we drink out of. I mean, there's toxins in the air and the body can take only so much toxins. And then once it gets too toxic inside your body, something breaks down. And uh, so you got to do things. Even sleep. I, I've learned uh, since I've had this Parkinson's that the brain gets rid of toxins only through sleep, only through being in a REM stage of sleep. So if you don't get enough sleep, your brain is not going to detox. Hmm. I don't care how hard you work it's going to get foggy up there, you know? And yeah. uh, so, you, like you said, you know, sometimes you need a nap more than you need a pep talk. But I think you have to be very intentional and plan out how exactly are you going to eat? How exactly are you going to get your sleep? 
and uh, and how are you going to, you know, get rid of the toxins in your body? Because if you don't, it's going to catch up to you. It is going to get you. And you never think about it as it's building up all those years. You don't think enough, enough about it. You make jokes about it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's going to get you in the end. And I just want people to take care of themselves better. Yeah. Well, you know, I know after you retired, you lost, what, 50 pounds before you found out about your Parkinson's diagnosis. You, right. You well, really leaned into that. Got me, you know, thinking about eating better and all that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I went from about, actually 40 pounds. I went from about 250 to 205, 210. And it really wasn't that hard. I just, it was amazing. You just follow the rules and it actually works. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, I'm curious what the last couple of years, um, we've talked a lot about leadership and team and culture. Like in, in the last couple of years of the heart attack and the Parkinson's, the physical struggle. Uh, how has that informed or maybe even shifted some of the thoughts you have around leadership? Right. How's that impacted that? Well, I'll say this. I really wouldn't have changed much of anything. When I look back, when I look back at my life, I, I see, I, I just see blessings. I see, I'm, I'm thankful for everything I was able to do and, and, and I'm still able to do. I mean, I, I get a chance to go out on the speaking tour and try to bless people that way through whether it's faith-based or a nonprofit leadership, mentorship, whatever it is, you know, I, I still get a chance to be intentional in people's lives, and that's and that's wonderful. But you know, when it comes to these physical ailments, the heart attack, and now this Parkinson's thing, I mean, the heart attack, truthfully, in about an hour and a half, I went from almost dying to being cured. I mean, hmm. the bottom line is when you, when you have a heart attack, there's no blood flow to your heart. I had two arteries 100% blocked, one being the Widowmaker. But as soon as they put stents in there and I had free flow in blood, I was cured. Now, the question is, does your heart go through, do you damage your heart in the process? Well, it might. I got it in and out so fast, there's really no damage to my heart. So it was kind hmm. of a dramatic thing, uh, but it was over in about hmm. 24 hours. And, yeah. uh, but this Parkinson's is a whole another animal. I mean, it's something mm. that doesn't go away. There's no cure. And little by little, you're supposed to become less and less. And, um, you know, so what are you going to do with that? Well, first of all, you're thankful for everything you've had to begin with. You live every day uh, like it's your last and, uh, and, and enjoy every bit of it. And, uh, you know, once I became a believer, my focus went from the temporal thinking to eternal thinking. When you think about the temporal, uh, the short term, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, within five or 10 years or 20 years, I'm going to be a prisoner in my own body or whatever. You can start thinking that. Or you could say, you think eternally, hey, this is a momentary light affliction compared to the glory that I'm going to get when I go to heaven. This new glorified body with no sin and no no disease to uh, be united with my spirit and soul that became, you know, that became right with God when I became a believer. I mean, that, that's that's exciting news, and that's why I could I could say that I'm still a very blessed man, and I believe that. As a close, Mark, one of the first questions I asked you was about finishing the drill, and I just think that you're such a great example of that. I want to thank you mm -hmm. for finishing the drill in every season. You've, you've run the race in a way to win. And it's a privilege watching you 
finish the drill in this season of your life with being obviously still contributing to the world of sport, but more importantly, I think just watching you be a good father and a good husband and continuing your fatherhood, obviously beyond your family with this world that you continue to serve of athletics. And I'm sure people reach out to you in the past six months telling you about the impact that you've yeah. had on their life. And I just yes. want to say that we are included in that. And I want to thank you for your time. Well, I enjoyed it a bunch. And then I do enjoy doing this. And uh, I think what you guys are doing are aw- is awesome. And uh, I hope you keep up the good work. Thanks, Coach. Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance. 